we are going to turn, we're going to continue in our series in the book of Daniel. So turn to Daniel chapter 2. Um, you'll remember from last week, if you were here, that Daniel and his friends, and indeed the nation of Israel, um, are in exile in Babylon. And we're going to read through um, most of Daniel chapter 2. It's quite a long chapter, so um, we're cutting a few little bits out um, for the sake of time. But we're going to begin um, at the start of Daniel chapter 2. This is God's word. In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. His mind was troubled and he could not sleep. So the king summoned the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers to tell him what he had dreamed. When they came in and stood before the king, he said to them, I have had a dream that troubles me, and I want to know what it means. The astrologers answered the king in Aramaic, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream, and we will interpret it. The king replied to the astrologers, This is what I have firmly decided. If you do not tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut into pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. But if you tell me the dream and explain it, you will receive from me gifts and rewards and great honor. So tell me the dream and interpret it to me. Now, naturally enough, they they can't interpret the dream, so um, skipping on to verse 13. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. When Arioch, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? Arioch then explained the matter to Daniel. At this, Daniel went into the king and asked for time so that he might interpret the dream for him. Then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. During the night, the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision. Then Daniel praised the God of heaven, and he sings a song of praise. But verse 25. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you lay on your bed are these. As you were lying there, O king, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than other living men, but so that you, O king, may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. You looked, O king, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, and its feet 
partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret it to the king. You, O king, are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will rise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands. A rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and the interpretation is trustworthy. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. This is God's word. I realize that was quite a long reading. It probably wins the prize for the longest that I have ever read at a church service. And we didn't even read the whole chapter. But I thought it was important to read that much because otherwise the story wouldn't really make sense. You'd be in the dark. Without reading the first part, well, we'd have no idea what all the fuss is about, what the problem is. The king has had this dream and no one can interpret it for him. Without the middle part, we have no idea how Daniel gets the answer to this. If we left that out, we might just think that he was really very clever or something like that. We wouldn't know how he got the interpretation. And hey, what's a story without the ending? It wouldn't be much good if, if Daniel had got the interpretation but we'd been left on a cliffhanger. What happens to these men die? What goes on? Leaving out any part of the story would have left us in the dark. And that's quite ironic because the main issue facing each of the characters in this story at least at first, is that they don't have the full story. 
First, there's the king, Nebuchadnezzar, and he knows half the story. He's probably doing the best out of everybody. He knows he's had this dream. He knows what he saw in the dream, but he has no idea what it's about. He's in the dark. Then there's the advisors, the magicians, the enchanters, sorcerers, and astrologers, or as they're simply called later, the wise men of Babylon. But they don't even have half the story. They know that the king's had a dream, but that's it. They don't know what the king saw, never mind what it means. And then there's Daniel, and at the start he knows even less again. The first he hears about it, somebody has sent for him to be taken away, to be executed. It seems that he was one of the wise men of Babylon, but he wasn't maybe quite senior enough at this stage to have been in that audience with the king in the first place. We read in verse one that these events took place in the second year of Nebuchadnezzar's reign. Though we know in Babylonian culture, they don't actually ever count the first year of a king's reign. It's a strange thing they do. That's the year of ascension, and then they count the years after that. So whilst it says in the Bible that this was the second year, and that's true, it's the second year in Babylonian terms, so it's really three years in our language. You might remember from last week that Daniel was doing three years of study in what we call the King's University of Babylon. So Daniel has finished at this stage. He's a new graduate, if you like. And that's why he's caught up in all this. That's why he's sent for as well. That's why he's counted among the wise men. So everybody in Daniel chapter two is faced with quite a conundrum. Now we in the 21st century, we might say, what's all the fuss about here? It's only a dream. Forget about it. You normally forget your dreams anyway, don't you? But we have to realize that the Babylonians were absolutely obsessed with dreams. These wise men, the astrologers, they actually knew even how to induce dreams. I've been doing a bit of reading about it this week. It's all kinds of crazy. They, they used to cook up all kinds of concoctions with different animal livers and all kinds of different things that you either ate or, or you inhaled the fumes of. Not quite narcotics, but probably going along that road. And these give you really vivid dreams. And then these guys, they would say that they could interpret them for you. You tell them the dream, they would tell you the future. I suppose it's a bit like going to get your palm read or reading your star sign in the paper, not that we want to encourage that, but it's probably the ancient equivalent. If you were worried about the future, you could go to these guys, get yourself a dream, and find out what the future supposedly holds. And that's why God communicates to Nebuchadnezzar in this way, I think. He knows that um, if he has a troubling and a vivid dream, the king's not going to rest until he finds out what it means. So God, in his grace, communicates to Nebuchadnezzar in this way. You know, sometimes people throw the accusation at us as Christians, particularly as they read the Old Testament, well, that, that temple in the Old Testament, sure, all the other religions of the time, they had something very similar. And the reason that God does that is because the people will expect their God to have a temple. They, they see all the nations around them, all their gods have temples, so that's what they will expect. Now, of course, God's temple is different, God is present, there are no idols in it, unlike the pagan temples. But God is gracious enough to communicate and reveal himself in a way that the people will grasp and will understand. He does that all through the Bible, and he does it here to Nebuchadnezzar. It's not a weakness, it, it's actually just a sign of God's grace. He communicates with the king here in a way that Nebuchadnezzar understands the significance of so that Daniel can then give him the interpretation and that will start a journey with Nebuchadnezzar, which will, as we'll see later on in Daniel, it'll actually cause Nebuchadnezzar to know God for himself. So this dream is a big deal. 
it is a big deal, no matter what our modern minds might think about it, because it's how God speaks to Nebuchadnezzar. The king seems to know that it's about the future. He seems to know it's something important, and it really troubles him. We're told at the start that he could not sleep. It's keeping him awake. And so these wise men, well, they're really troubled by this too because it's a matter of life and death for them, and, and they scheme and they try to get more time. Tell, tell us the dream, you know, tell us it, and then we'll go and look it up. No, the king will have none of it. And it's a big deal for Daniel and his friends because it's life and death for them too. The stakes are high for everybody here. They're all in a crisis. They all have big questions without answers. I wonder what about the things in this life that, that we have no answers to. You may be here today and, and you might have some big questions. Those questions might be quite profound. How can I really know that there's a God out there? Why is there so much suffering in the world? Why is this world just so messed up? Maybe your questions, though, are, are much more personal, and in that sense, on a smaller scale, but, but to you, they're huge. They, they consume you. What will I do if I lose my job? What if those test results coming up bring bad news? Why is my marriage struggling so much? What am I going to do about my child who just seems to be off the rails? How am I going to cope without my loved one? Maybe we can't even form a question. I was chatting with somebody this week, not connected to Ravenhill, and one of their relatives has just been given really bad news medically, and they just said to me, I just can't believe it. I just don't know what I'm meant to do. I just can't get it at all. Maybe we can't form our questions, but we all have big questions and conundrums, situations in our lives that are, that are hard to get our heads around. We have times when, just like Nebuchadnezzar, we can't get past something, we can't forget it, we can't let it go. And so what I want to do with the rest of our time this morning is to ask the question, how do we deal with those big issues? How do we approach them? What, in a sense, do we bring to the table as we face these, as we come across these difficult scenarios in life when we don't know the future, when everything just seems difficult? Well, I think that one thing that people sometimes try to do is what I'm going to call the king's approach or the Nebuchadnezzar approach. Now, you might think at first thought, well, not many people would react quite like Nebuchadnezzar did, and, and you'd be right, but I think underlying his actions are something that is actually not that uncommon. Nebuchadnezzar had power, and plenty of it. We tend to call the President of the United States the most powerful person in the world, don't we? November's coming up. I wouldn't like to be an American. I don't think it's much of a choice, but that's enough of my political commentary. Whoever wins that election will have plenty of power. And I think in his day, Nebuchadnezzar was probably just about the equivalent the Babylonian Empire at its height was, was incredibly strong. It was completely ruthless. Many surrounding nations were plundered, including Israel at this time. And Nebuchadnezzar was the head of it. He had no military rival. He had no political opponent to fear. He was truly the most powerful man in the world. And even Daniel acknowledges this. In verse 37, when he's interpreting the dream, he says, you, O king, are the king of kings, the God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds of the air. 
Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. So powerful that Daniel even says, God has placed animals under your dominion. Nebuchadnezzar brought, humanly speaking, a lot of power. And he tries to use it to get the answer to his problems. This is what he says to the astrologers. This is what I firmly decided. If you don't tell me what my dream was and interpret it, I will have you cut to pieces and your houses turned into piles of rubble. He sounds like a nice sort of fella. The king tries to use his power to sort this massive problem out, to get the answer to all his questions. But it doesn't work. And I wonder, do we sometimes try to do the same? And I don't mean cutting people to pieces, far from it. But I think sometimes we try to use what we have in terms of our earthly possessions, what we can kind of muster up to get past our questions, sometimes even just to avoid them. We think that if we can gather up enough, it'll solve all our problems. All those questions we have, the dissatisfaction in this world and in this life, I can sort that out with worldly things. Nebuchadnezzar brutally tried to solve his problem. Some of us ruthlessly pursue our, our careers. We want to have a particular house or car or phones or family or job or friends or we think the right level of self-care will do it for us. Whatever it is, and we think when we finally kind of achieve those things, we'll be satisfied. And all those things I just listed, there is not a jot wrong with any of them. It's not sinful to get your dream job or to look after yourself. But once we start to rely on those things as number one, once we rely on those for our hope and the sense to distract us, to take our problems away, we quickly find that it just doesn't work. The king's approach, no, it, it isn't to be recommended. What about the, the wise men then? Not to be confused with a Christmas story. The, the astrologers, the, the diviners, whoever they are, probably the ancient equivalent of the sort of spad or political advisor, trend spotters. Well, these guys, they rely on their cleverness. They have studied and studied and studied. And you and I might scoff at the subjects they studied, the kind of magic and dream interpretation and all the rest of it. But it would be very wrong to say that these guys were stupid. If, if the Babylonian Empire is basically the world, which it is, these men are the brightest in the world. They try to convince the king by boasting about their cleverness. T tell us what your dream is, Nebuchadnezzar. Don't, don't worry about it, just tell us, and we'll definitely be able to interpret it. We're really bright. We'll tell you everything. We're clever. We'll sort your future out. But why doesn't the king tell them? Well, we don't know for sure. The Bible doesn't tell us. Maybe the power had just got to his head. I mean, he was threatening in one breath to cut them to pieces and in the next breath, if they told him, to, to give them high position and status. Maybe he thought that if he gave the dream away, then they'd just tell him what he wanted to hear. Maybe it was some sort of test to see how clever they really were. But the bottom line was that their knowledge, their cleverness, it wasn't going to help a bit. And I think this is truer for people today more than we might realize. Some of us, when we face a problem or, or a big issue, we're straight to research, we want to read about it, we want to get all the knowledge to find a solution. But even more broadly than that, I, I think many people in the world are doing this today, people who don't know God. I'll tell you what I mean. Uh, most of you probably know that before I went into ministry, I was a research scientist, and between study and work, I spent about eight years in the world of research chemistry. 
And I have to say that many people in that area are doing just that kind of thing. They, they have a curious mind. And so they try to satisfy themselves with all kinds of knowledge. Some are, are atheists, but actually not that many. You'd be surprised. Most are agnostic. They believe there must be some kind of God out there. Otherwise, the universe couldn't make any sense. But they go searching for answers, and they do that through their work and their research, and they just try and build up more and more knowledge. But it never ultimately satisfies them. So what about Daniel then? What is it that he gets so right? In verse 14, we're told that he acts with wisdom and tact. And I think from reading both last week and this week in the book of Daniel, it seems that Daniel really has two kinds of wisdom. He has the kind of general wisdom. He always just knows what to say or what to do, it would seem. He knew how to ask and negotiate last week when he didn't want to eat the pork from the king's table, you might remember. And here he seems to know what to say, who to say it to, to get himself a bit more time to, to interpret this dream, to go away and get the answer, and to get an audience with the king to give that answer. He has this general wisdom in how he conducts himself. And then, of course, the second type of wisdom that he gets isn't really his wisdom. It's, it's the knowledge God gives him directly of the contents of the dream and its meaning. So, all right, it, it seems a pretty good idea, doesn't it? Um, to navigate our problems with godly wisdom. That sounds like we're in church, and yeah, that sounds like a good thing that we should probably run with. We should probably navigate our problems with godly wisdom. But how do we get there? Well, I think very simply that it flows out of an active relationship with God. That's what is obvious from what we read about Daniel. It flows out of an active relationship with God. Daniel makes it very clear in verse 30 when he goes in with the king that he isn't more clever than any other man. He says that no, he isn't, but the knowledge comes from God, the revealer of mysteries. And Daniel has this active relationship with God that involves speaking to God and hearing from God. What does he do? What does he do when he hears that he's going to be executed? Well, he buys himself a bit more time. Somehow he manages it when the other wise men didn't, but then he goes away and he prays. Verses 17 and 18, then Daniel returned to his house and explained the matter to his friends, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, otherwise known as Chadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his friends might not be executed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Prayer is central for Daniel. There's so much more we could say about that. It could have been the whole sermon, but for now, it's probably worth noticing that he doesn't pray alone. There's nothing wrong with praying alone, but Daniel doesn't pray alone. He prays with others. And we shouldn't ever underestimate the power of praying together. The other thing we see about Daniel, though, is that his knowledge of God, he has a knowledge of God that really could have only come from knowing the Scriptures. Again, think to back to last week when Daniel knew what the foot laws were, he knew he shouldn't break those. And here in chapter two, he has a biblical perspective on everything, on how Nebuchadnezzar came to power, ordained by God. We didn't read the little song of praise in the middle of the chapter, but if you read it later, you'll see that he knows what the scriptures say about history, about how God was faithful to his ancestors. So what about us? What does an active relationship with God look like? Well, it's very simple, it's the same thing. We talk to God in prayer, and we hear from him through the scriptures. 
Now, you probably didn't come here this morning to hear a lecture on how you should pray and read the Bible more. We probably know as Christians that we should pray and read the Bible. It doesn't sound that profound, does it? But our ancestors called those things the ordinary means of grace. You've maybe heard that phrase, the ordinary means of grace. Ordinary because we don't rule out that God can do the extraordinary. He certainly does with Daniel. But this is the normal way that God will communicate with us and we will communicate with him. We speak to him and he speaks to us in these very ordinary things. That's the means, that's the way we get grace. That's how we live out our relationship with God. In praying and and reading the Bible and doing these things alone and doing these things together. Now, I can't promise you that if you do these things or if you do them more than you're currently doing them, that you'll just have all the answers to everything, that you will magically have Daniel-type wisdom, if only it were that simple. But I can promise you, I think, that you'll begin to see the questions you have and that the problems you have in a different light. John Calvin famously spoke about the spectacles of Scripture. The more we read it, the more we kind of see the world through these lenses, the more we see things the way God sees them, and we process things in a godly way. So when we face issues in our lives, when we have big questions about the world, about the future, we're best equipped to face those with godly wisdom. And if we get this simply from knowing God, from having a relationship with him, the proverb famously says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom or of knowledge. Knowing God, fearing him, that leads us to wisdom. But the other thing that we bring to the table, as it were, when we approach problems that life throws at us is that we know the final outcome is secure. This is what Nebuchadnezzar's dream actually teaches us. Remember, the dream is from God. It is true. Now, lots of people have gone to lots of effort. I've read a lot this week to analyze every single aspect of this dream. You know, gold is Babylon. Silver is the Medo-Persian Empire. Bronze is the Greek Empire. The, The iron and clay is the divided Roman Empire. And most scholars agree about that. And the rock that controls them, well, that that must be something God does because it's not cut out by human hands. But to be honest, to get bogged down in the the details of which kingdom is which, it's kind of actually to miss the point. What is important is that all the human kingdoms, they fall, but the rock, it smashes them and it stands and it fills the earth forever. What God is doing is going to last Even as Daniel interpreted this dream, he couldn't have known exactly what God was going to do, exactly what this rock was, what was going to happen. But we look from a very different perspective. It's like when you've seen a movie where there's a twist at the end and you go back and you watch the movie again, you can't help but see, you can't help but know the whole way through there's gonna be this twist at the end and we know what God does at the end. In Luke chapter 20, Jesus actually identifies himself as a stone or a rock. And this is what he says. Quoting Psalm 118, he says, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. He's speaking about himself because he is going to be rejected, but he is also establishing a new kingdom. He is that capstone or foundation stone of a new kingdom. But listen to what he goes on to say. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and he on whom it falls will be crushed. Jesus actually, I think, identifies himself as the rock in Daniel chapter two. Jesus came to establish a new kingdom 
a new order that would outlast all the kingdoms of this world, all the problems we face in this world, all the questions we have about this world and why it is the way that it is. He came, he established a new kingdom. All these questions, they're all in the end of the day, they're all transient. For those who are saved by Jesus and who are part of his kingdom, the outcome is secure and the outcome is everlasting. God has it all planned out. He knows it before it happens. The outcome is secure. When it comes to politics, which is essentially what the dream was about, which empire was gonna stand or not, well, whether we're in the EU or out of it, Labour government, Tory government, executive at Stormont, no executive, border down the RSC, no border down the RSC, whatever. These things are important and Christians should be involved in them because after all, that is what the dream is about that God gives to Nebuchadnezzar. But there is a deeper importance in the fact that God has it all planned. He knows it all. He's working his purpose out. He knows it all. When it comes to your life, he knows it all. He has a purpose for you. Your life will go in this direction because the kingdom is going to be established no matter what the ups and downs are. It might turn out very well for us like it did for Daniel. It might not. It hasn't done for many Christians across the years. Some have paid the ultimate price for their faith. You don't need me to tell you that. But this knowledge of the certain future can sustain us through grief and despair and questions and doubts. We face these things in the knowledge that God ultimately rules and he can do anything. And in fact, he specializes in doing the rather quite unlikely. Did you notice that Daniel, when he comes in to give the interpretation, he's introduced not as one of the wise men of Babylon. No, he's introduced as one of those exiles, one of those Jewish fellows. And then the king nearly sneers at him and he says, are you gonna give me the interpretation? Can you do it? And yet at the end of the story, despite the fact that that was so condescending. At the end of the story, this king, the most powerful man in the world, he ends up bowing down before this Jewish exile and worshiping his God. The kingdoms of the earth look powerful, but God will establish his. So how do we navigate our way through these troubles? Well, firstly, we live wisely. That is with God's counsel. That involves knowing him. That's possible through Christ and therefore the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. And secondly, how do we navigate our troubles? Well, we do it in the knowledge that the outcome is secure. There is a hope that stands the test of time. We're gonna sing that in a moment. Only God's wisdom can reveal the mysteries of this life. Only Daniel's God, our God, only he knows the future. This knowledge of the future is particularly important to God's people as we know that he controls history so we face all that this life has to throw at us in the knowledge that in spite of what our present circumstances might look like, God is in control. Let's pray together. Father, we give you thanks for your word and for all you tell us and teach us through it. Thank you that even when circumstances look like they are stacked against us, you are in control. Thank you that when this world leaves us in the deepest pit, we know that you are sovereign and you have a purpose and that because of what Jesus has done, we can know you walking beside us in those times. And we can know that ultimately, those things will not thwart the plans you have for your people and your world. We want to lift before you particularly this morning, those whose lives have been impacted by the tightening of lockdown restrictions across Belfast and in other places this past week. 
We pray for those whose family lives are impacted and made more difficult by this. We pray for those who had made plans that will have to be changed. And we pray for those who fear that even stronger and stricter restrictions may be coming in the future and the impact that that might have on their business and on their livelihood. Ultimately, Lord, we pray in the midst of these times that you would root each one of us in the confidence that you are sovereign, that you are in control, and that we can rest in the victory that Jesus has won for us that will never be taken away no matter what the world throws at us. And we pray that you would equip us in that confidence so that we could share that good news with others so that Christ's kingdom would grow. And we pray in his name. Amen.